Hello and welcome to this episode of Influx, a podcast hosted by the Center for Internet and Society, where we discuss technology, policy, politics, and so much more. The world right now is a crazy, crazy place. Of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic pinballing into a complete global health hazard, it, it has revealed a lot of societal fault lines and class inequalities and has made us live with these uh, fault lines and the mani- various manifestations on our regular lives. While we are doing that, there are another set of issues that I think we should concern ourselves with, and that is, of course, the uh, attempts by governments and private corporations to make us use technology and applications which under the guise of solving the problems and elevating some of the issues faced by classes of people are resulting in mass surveillance with the dubious privacy policies and opaque disclosures of data usage. Case in point is of course the Arugya Setu app. Now, if you have followed any literature on surveillance, either put out by CIS or by anyone else, you'd know that in most cases, surveillance uh, results in an affront to human dignity and in our fundamental rights of privacy. And you would also know that it comes in several shapes and forms. The more prominent one of them are one lateral surveillance, which is basically peer-to-peer monitoring and reportage. There is state surveillance, which comes in forms of regulations, laws, and policies. And in this episode, we'll be chiefly focusing on extraterritorial surveillance, where basically one state decides to monitor the communications and activities of an individual residing outside the territory of that state. And I think one of the most fascinating eye-opener and one good entry point of this is the Washington Post expose done this February where they kind of reported the activities of Crypto AG which is a Swedish company which sold encryption devices to countries around the world and in the guise of doing so allowed a backdoor access to all classified confidential uh, communications of these countries to CIA and the West German spy agency. I am Torsha and today I'm joined by Arindajit who has written a very interesting piece for the NUJS Law Review where he looks at extraterritorial surveillance in detail and also looks at the international human rights framework underpinning it and criticizes the failures of that. So um, thank you Arindajit for being with us and uh, agreeing to walk us through the multifarious manifestations of this issue. And yeah, uh, th- thanks, Torsha. I think this is an exciting episode because this is also the first episode that we are recording remotely uh, after the uh, right. we started working from home due to the pandemic. So, so le- let's see how this goes. And I guess for listeners, if there are interruptions and things like that, we we do apologize. But let's see, let's see how this goes. Um, yeah, and thanks. I just just before we get into the sort of uh, meat of the discussion, I just wanted to say that I think it's really great that you opened with the reference to surveillance in today's day and age because we are living uh, in a crisis we are living in the times of a pandemic and really the extraterritorial surveillance started uh, with zest and that i've described in the article started actually post 9-11 so it was another crisis of sorts that was not of sorts it was a crisis that was then used to change the notion of of privacy to change the notion of surveillance and through this sort of overarching notion of national security uh, civil liberties 
both of american citizens but even more of foreign citizens were entirely disregarded and that's exactly what we are seeing here today and i know we'll discuss surveillance in times of covid in more detail in coming episodes but i think it's really a sort of parallel where 911 and national security led to the undermining of privacy back in 2001 and continues to do that uh, uh, in 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 a, in a variety of ways but just like that i think covid is becoming a similar watershed moment where public health and the excuse of public health is leading to uh, a systematic undermining of civil liberties so i think it's great that you opened with that exactly i mean we can't ignore the elephant in the room right now which is covid 19 so everything that we talk about will ultimately loop into this public crisis that we are living through but um, before we get into those aspects of it i think i would like for conceptual clarity i think we'd really like to hear how you have chose to look at extraterritorial surveillance in the paper and also just why should we care and what are the very real threats that this pro- proves to individuals around the world yeah yeah i think that's a, that's a great place to start so extraterritorial surveillance as you very nicely put is basically when the state or potentially non-state actors or state working with non-state actors as is the case with the united states uh conduct surveillance on the citizens so they monitor communications and often in the case of the us again it's bulk surveillance it's mass surveillance where they monitor the communications of citizens in other parts of the world right so the key problem with this and this is sort of a problem that international law and specifically international human rights law was designed to solve is that as a citizen of another country you have no recourse against the country that is conducting surveillance on you right so as an indian citizen if the us intelligence agency the national security agency or the central intelligence agency as you mentioned is conducting surveillance on me i cannot vote that government out of power i cannot vote the government allowing the surveillance out of power i for the most part i don't have recourse in us courts and i don't have recourse in indian courts so what will indian courts do about about the united states conducting surveillance what i supposedly have recourse in is in this notion of international human rights law where i can or i along with certain ngos or whatever can complain to the united nations uh, human rights uh, committee or uh, or any sort of human rights global human rights bodies and they are supposed to somehow shame the united states into complying with these uh, human rights norms of privacy and and free speech and things right. like that but what's happened is and which is why i took up this sort of question is that we've seen that since 911 there has been a systematic disregard of human rights law by the united states and it and its intelligence agencies and i'm sure we'll go into how this has happened later on but really that's the entry point that if human rights law that is the only recourse for a vulnerable citizen in some part of the world against the most powerful country and it's the most powerful countries that have these extraterritorial surveillance programs particularly the us if their only recourse is human rights law and there is there are so many academics and so many human rights organizations that believe that human rights law is the gold standard that human rights law will solve these issues of powerlessness it's not worked right because the us is both uh through judicial decisions in some ways and the us government has systematically ignored the spirit of international human rights law and continued with these uh, surveillance provisions with with harmful consequences and i think that's why we need to be concerned about extraterritorial surveillance because as of now unless 
both academia, policy, and rights groups start rethinking human rights law, which is what I actually positioned for, we will continuously be at the receiving end of rights violations. And that's why I think this topic right. is important. So, uh, of course, we will like discuss the second part of your paper, which looks at the failures of international human rights frameworks. But uh, so what I'm curious about is the domestic laws of these countries also do not have any um, any recourse or any limits to the powers of these spying agencies to intercept other people's communications. So the systematic disregard of human rights and the having absolutely no recourse is bolstered by the domestic legal framework of these powers. Am I right in that thinking? Yeah, 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 definitely. So first of all, let's let's look at before we come to the specific of the, the, the domestic legal frameworks, I think just very quickly, let's look at some of the programs that that the Snowden revelations in 2013 that they made right. known to the public, right? That was the major watershed moment where there was this major disclosure and the public woke up to the extent to which surveillance was being conducted. So let's let's look at some of these programs and I've gone into them in detail in the paper. But say, so the NSA basically partnered with private companies such as AT&T, Verizon and all these uh, internet service providers and a variety of private sector companies that dealt right. with personal data uh, to actually just conduct these mass surveillance programs. So one of them is Blarney, which basically relied on NSA's relationship with AT&T, which is a telecom uh, provider to gain access to high capacity international fiber optic cables, switches and routers throughout the world. Right. So they, they, this program targeted uh, various individuals in Brazil, France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Japan, Mexico, South Korea, and Venezuela, among others. This is all that's known, right? Similarly, there was the famous PRISM program, where uh, which was there, which was a major part of the Snowden revelations. And they basically enabled the NSA to engage in upstream collection, where they directly obtained content from the servers of private internet, uh, internet service providers in the US. And uh, as you know, most of the internet service providers and data processors in the world are located in the US, right? So the US actually has at some level access to a majority of, of the world's data. It's at, they do uh, sort of transit through choke points that are located in the US. So that's basically what the NSA uh, was doing. And of course, uh, then after that, after they collect amass all this data, there are a number of uh, programs that allow uh, algorithmic targeting. So X key score and treasure map are examples of these programs where they basically conduct uh, analytics to determine the risk profile of various individuals. So for example, one uh, declassified NSA slide says that if you uh, in that program put in a query called say Germans in Pakistan, they enable residents in Pakistan who may be surfing certain German language messaging systems. And they assume that that is for potentially targeting through terrorist content, right? So there are a number of these programs that basically pre-assign risk scores to certain individuals and then they uh, uh, conduct targeting on, the, on that data. So it's basically that it happens in two steps. One where there is bulk collection of data, but of course, if you have too much data, that's not that much of use to you. But the second step of this program is really where through using artificial intelligence, they're able to filter out data that they believe is of some use to them. But of course, the way they filter out is based on a risk assessment that may be biased, right? So for example, Germans that are sort of targeting, uh, sorry, Pakistanis that are targeting German language websites may not, uh, I mean, may not necessarily be doing it for some harmful purposes, right? So uh, there is definitely um, concerns and uh, you would have seen those in algorithmic filtering in other uh, contexts such as uh, where 
private sector actors, social media platforms filter uh, for for content. But there's definitely risks with using algorithms to decide which profile uh, is absolutely. is uh, risky and which profile is not. And often that the products yeah. of human bias, right? So that's that's basically the problem with the programs. In terms of applicable domestic law and policy, there are a number of provisions and executive orders in the U.S. that allow for uh, surveillance, but for the most part within the united states individuals are protected as in if you bulk surveillance for the most part is not allowed like if you are uh, conducting surveillance there is still a need for some sort of a some sort of a warrant sorry bulk surveillance for domestic individuals or also for extraterritorial yeah yeah so any when you are conducting surveillance domestically uh, the the us law states that you need a warrant of some sort right that uh, so uh, if you look at the provisions of the foreign intelligence surveillance uh, act the fisa which allows uh, the uh, uh, targeting of both us and non us citizens the it clearly adopts different approaches depending on whether the targets are us persons or non us persons us persons can only be targeted if there is probable cause to believe that the individual is a foreign agent foreign agent and a warrant is issued by a foreign intelligence surveillance court so clearly there is a two step process where you need to have a suspicion and a warrant is issued however non us persons may be surveilled under a lower reasonable belief standard without a judicial warrant so anyway i mean it's not like the us Uh, citizens are under some great level of protection because the foreign intelligence surveillance court we know has uh, been through uh, i mean uh, controversies of secrecy and being clandestine etc and that's that's definitely an issue but at least on paper they have some protection at least legally they have some protection non us persons they can be conduct uh, surveilled without any warrant from the foreign intelligence surveillance court right only thing is the government must sign off on this high level operation plan annually so basically there is only a requirement of annual uh, right. signing off but every single surveillance program does not need to be approved by the court right which is obviously means that there is no scope for a judicial review when a non us person is into the mix now that is a, a great concern because of what i was saying in the beginning right that if you are if your rights are being violated by a us agency you can't vote that government out of power right and i think that is that is the that is the biggest concern so there are uh, executive orders that came out under barack president barack obama executive order 1233 that basically paid some lip service to to privacy so they for example they said something vague like our signals intelligence activities must take into account that all individuals must be treated with dignity regardless of their nationality or wherever they reside and that all persons have legitimate privacy interests in the handling of their personal information but this is a very broad statement which doesn't have any uh, support either in the law or in judicial decisions right so actually it the directive goes on to state that data will be collected where there exists a foreign intelligence or counter intelligence purpose and departmental missions and not for other purposes but then they go on to mention six cases where bulk targeting of non us citizens is possible and these are so broad right they include espionage terrorist threats to the us threats due to proliferations of weapons cyber security which is like literally an entire program at cis so it accompanies uh, encompasses everything threats to the us or allied armed forces and transnational criminal threats so these six areas 
are pretty much like all of tech policy like the research that all of us are doing so it's so broad right and these are all reasons that can enable bulk surveillance so even though the barack obama supposed liberal great president even he didn't limit the surveillance programs when it came to the rights of foreign citizens and i don't want to go too much in detail into the uk a regulation of investigating investigatory powers act but they also have similar protections for uh, uk citizens but no protections for non uk citizens and they also conduct a variety of uh, bulk uh, surveillance on non uk citizens which is uh, where i think the international human rights law should step in and actually protect people but uh, as we will discuss it, it it doesn't do so right it's it's so interesting that like while you were talking about the snowden thing i kind of uh, went back to one other output that we had put out which was on the transparency reporting um practices of these uh, social media intermediaries which kind of took a extensive like increase after the snowden leaks because they were eager to please the eager to please users and say that oh we are accountable and we don't right right because they were partners of the nsa right exactly i mean they were giving the data nsa data to the nsa yes and the funny thing is there while some of the companies like google twitter for example some of them really stepped up and gave detailed uh, indexes for data of us citizens their reportage for mm. other countries like right. india and other third world countries just continue to remain as woeful as it probably was a couple of years ago so it so yeah so the aspect of extraterritorial surveillance goes several ways and uh, yeah so yeah because i suppose that they are they know that ultimately uh because they are us based companies it is the us government that can hold them right. to account so they need they can be a little more lax when they're looking at the rights of citizens located in other countries and largely in in global south countries right because they can't the governments of these countries can't can't hold them to account so yeah that's a that's a very concerning concerning valid yeah, point yeah they don't have the like similar levels of lobbying power as or even like bigger civil society groups in us like tff for example So let's move on to the main meat of the argument which is the failure of international human rights law and how it can be better. So I'm guessing from the get go that the uh, protections accorded to individuals for extraterritorial surveillance are great on paper but don't actually translate into anything on practice. Is yeah, that Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you hit you hit the nail on the head, right? So human <laughs> rights law I think that's that's the that's sort of the, the what you said about uh this this topic is literally the human rights law summed up in one line great on paper but it doesn't <laughs> translate into practice right yes so yeah absolutely so there is article 2 uh, one of the international covenant on civil and political rights that basically the literally the literal reading of that is that all states must guarantee all the rights in the iccpr which includes a number of rights on privacy and free expression to all individuals located within their territory or within their jurisdiction right so all countries and and most international courts and un special rapporteurs have always said that this does not literally mean that you only owe obligations to your citizens in fact there are multiple interpretations but for example the one interpretation is that uh, you owe obligations as long as effective control is exercised by a state in a manner that violates the right to privacy the european court of human rights has said uh, that uh, extraterritorial application 
I mean, must uh, th- th- this is of course reading from the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the European sort of version of the ICCPR that they secure to everyone within the jurisdiction the rights and freedoms defined in Section One of the Convention, and there has clearly been cases where uh, they have actually. um looked at uh, cases of extraterritorial violations the us however has clearly taken a very uh, literal reading of article 2 one of the iccpr they have said within territory within jurisdiction full stop so that means that we only owe obligations to us citizens but even though several academics have criticized this approach and they say that this approach defeats the purpose of international uh, human rights law um this is uh, there are various arguments that have argued on grammar and said that this interpretation is not correct there are various uh, argue, academic arguments on spirit um who say that i mean there should be not just respecting the rights like i mean of us citizens but also of global citizens but of course uh, these arguments have largely been disregarded by the us so that is one one concern even though there is pretty much consensus on the fact that article 21 does apply extraterritorially the us is not uh, been so receptive to this idea so that's that's definitely one a uh, uh, one concern the second concern is that there is uh, a vast sort of privacy jurisprudence and free speech jurisprudence which you would have examined uh, during an intermediary liability work and uh, that's great right so so uh, this jurisprudence exists the problem is that i have done a survey of uh, decisions of both us courts and european courts when they've tried to implement these decisions and basically what they've done is that they've provided state so the european court of human rights has when implementing uh, decisions on privacy or on bulk surveillance have provided states with what is known as a margin of appreciation which is basically them paying deference to sovereign rights so basically they they say that yes these laws exist but all states have a margin of appreciation to appreciate to what extent they feel they are violating the right to privacy so the margin of appreciation and proportionality are the two while i mean we keep on using it in our in our submission this doctrine of proportionality that there should be nuance and balance what's happened in international human rights law even if proportionality has been an effective tool in domestic constitutional human rights law international human rights law proportionality has always veered towards the opposite end of the spectrum to civil liberties so when there is a sort of clash between national security and privacy its states have always opted for the margin of appreciation in favor of national security right because that is more tangible supposedly that benefits the state right because uh, i mean you can say that civil liberties is something that belongs more closely to individuals whereas national security is something the state can only provide so right. if they take a stance that veers towards national security it's basically the state saying that i am in charge of how your life is governed because only i can provide the requisite amount of security so if we look through how states have responded to this margin of appreciation and proportionality as we've seen through the cia and through various other moves post 911 as we are seeing today with the covid 19 pandemic you said we would circle back to that is that states have decided that they should have more control in deciding how individual lives are governed because they can solve the crisis better and that's exactly what's happened in the context of algorithmic surveillance there's been sort of what i uh, call a ritual incantation of of national security right where you must get to that yeah so that was actually first used by slightly different context by uh, this term was used by professor christine gray where she said that uh, states are engaging 
in a ritual incantation of self defense that whenever they are uh, waging wars and again the us is to blame here which is i guess the connecting thread whenever the us wages wars they always say in many cases that it was waged on self defense or so we marched into iraq why because we had a right to self defense we bombed kosovo why because we had some right to self so similarly much like this incantation of self defense there is the incantation of uh, this trump card whatever you call it of national yeah. security and, and today we are seeing this trump card of public health right so and that is the concern that human rights law and we that's where we go back to what you said before that human rights law great on paper but when it actually comes down to uh, implementing it it becomes uh, state generally refrained from uh, uh, taking the more rights preserving aspect of it particularly when, when it comes to citizens staying abroad so now the solution that has been proposed by some academics has been that as i was discussing the presidential order the 1233 that provided for some sort of procedural protection they said oh you can only conduct surveillance in these six cases there are academics who suggested procedural safeguards right so uh, to say that uh, you know uh, you uh, so ashley deeks has written this paper on on procedural safeguards that while uh, i mean we will not actually look at the sub, sub like our courts will not actually look at the substantial social costs of privacy violations um the way to solve this is to have procedural protection so for example whenever there is surveillance being conducted there is a proportionality test that that comes into play that uh, basically you ensure that there is legality and notice that is given to as many people as possible that uh, basically there is a periodic review that there must be a limits placed on data retention all these are great procedural uh, suggestions but there are i identified two problems with these sort of procedural codes right uh, or, or two or three problems they related one is that states simply don't listen right because you have these procedural codes that you think are are very useful but there is a huge power imbalance right whenever we've seen where states actually comply with international codes and procedural safeguards we've seen it to a large extent in the nuclear realm but that is because it's been known since both the usa and the ussr were armed by nuclear weapons that if any one state chooses to use a nuclear weapons the entire world can be eliminated 12 times over or 16 times over if the battle continues right so that threat no longer exists today in the context of surveillance because if a state chooses not to comply with the procedural safeguards all that will happen is that they'll get a rap on the knuckles from the un human rights committee or some random human rights commission yeah, and that will mean nothing it'll have no persuasive value and that exactly means nothing right because there is no strategic cost right there is no strategic cost there is an assumption and this is among human rights lawyers that there should that or there exists a shaming value where states are shamed into doing things that they uh, would not do otherwise but i am becoming increasingly skeptical of this shaming value of human rights law because whether you look at uh, china's behavior with regard to covid whether you look at us's behavior with regard to covid whether you look at uh, our own uh, uh, prime minister's uh, response to human rights commissions and committees and pressure from uh external parts of the world not just the prime minister but the overall indian government on say kashmir or on the citizenship, uh, citizenship amendment act it has largely been one of disregarding soft norms when we have cooperated it has always been when there is something tangible on the plate right so therefore what troubles me is this complacency 
among human rights lawyers to believe that human rights law will be the solution therefore if we write papers on procedural safeguards or on doctrinal thesis on human rights law and we spend money on propping up human rights organizations in the un and that will make states comply with uh, these normative ideas through a shaming value i think this idea is flawed and because there is i mean it's almost like a sort of uh, you know in the olden days you had the church dictating what is correct uh, what is correct and what is wrong and even today we have various institutions temples or whatever that dictate religious institutions religious institutions that dictate what what is right wrong or right or wrong normatively i think the international law community is a similar problem where there are these limited set of institutions not religious of course but ivy league colleges or, or the oxbridges of the world that decide what is in academically that what is broadly the right positions to take and the thing is that professors from these places uh, edit journals right they come on tv they um they they tweet about things right and therefore there is very little scope even among the liberal sort of uh, uh, international legal profession or among uh, people associated with human rights law to question the dominance of a few institutions and a few large uh, uh, organizations like amnesty international or human rights watch right and i'm not saying that these that these institutions are doing bad work or that they uh, uh they aren't achieving very notable goals what i am saying is that there needs to be uh, voices from other parts of the world that and maybe potentially more diverse organizations that challenge this complacency in human rights that so many organizations have right i think that is where we need to uh, start moving towards right yeah I, i i think i agree on most parts i was just thinking before the recording that what could possibly be any solution to this and we'll get to that at the end and i think the cynical so what do you, what do you disagree on no i i don't disagree on anything i think i agree on everything that you said i was just hmm. trying to think to myself with my very limited uh, expertise on international human rights that what could be the possible solutions and i think the cynic in me basically just said that as long as the past within don't set up and just like take note of the wrongness of it i don't think any shaming or any slap on the wrist is going to do anything about any yeah. of these issues so uh, you say limited expertise I, i don't think that's the case because you've engaged a lot with human rights law uh, when you were working on say uh, on say intermediate liability right so let let me pose a question to you now it's that in this in this domain of say social media content moderation intermediate liability and the free speech questions therein uh, i know that you've read the uh, un special rapporteur david k's work and things like that so where where do you think when you write when you write about protection of human rights by social media platforms that are inherently sort of multinational characters mm-hmm. where do you see human rights law actually coming into the mix right because or do you think that even in this context of uh, social media content media platforms uh, sorry content moderation uh, debates so social media platforms content moderation debates that uh, human rights law or international human rights law has absolutely no role to play right so as sort of an expert on this key human rights issue where do you think human rights law plays uh, what role do you think human rights law plays there and then maybe based on your suggestion i can bring in my suggestion that i offer not in this paper but in another in another set of writing that i've been trying to do um so uh, full disclosure i haven't exactly tried to like put a causation between uh, international human rights law and uh, free speech issues mainly because the way i see it is like my work mostly relates to regulation of speech and speech as i see it is a very cultural subjective context 
and i i haven't been able to find ways to pinpoint or even suggest how a global framework of speech will work erasing the cultural context surrounding it you must must have known about the ramdev baba case in the delhi high court which basically ordered for global takedown yeah the content takedown yeah exactly yes and uh, just the plain wrongness of it that uh, our uh, the defamation standards of our state has to be ac- uh, applied across the world and the uproar obvious uproar that it caused i think those kind of things stop me and i think simply people similarly placed who are working on intermediate liability from thinking about international human rights law into uh, like transposing international human rights law into intermediate liability most of our focus is on domestic efforts beat the net dg which everyone is talking about or the eu terrorist regulation or our own indian yeah. domestic laws but i think it'll be good to think about in the future once yeah. once yeah. these yeah crisis blows over maybe exactly yeah no no a, a great point I, i think as we as we were uh, discussing in a sort of a bit of writing that you and i were yeah. doing together last week that um that global governance of sort of social media platforms actually has to come from the uh, as grassroots level as possible right where actually it's because of the contextual the socio economic and cultural context of free speech you can't actually have global governance mechanisms that that regulate that have a one size fits all approach to regulating social media platforms across jurisdictions and that's fine right because the rights of every citizen is protected against the social media platform operating in that jurisdiction by the government that's working there and i think uh, it's fine uh, for the most part to just treat human rights and global governance processes just like an exchange or a talk shop where best practices are exchanged and you uh, actually do the real work the real regulation work at the uh, grassroots level maybe the central government but also in uh, coordination with various levels of district government but the problem in this case in the case of extraterritorial surveillance is that citizens don't actually have protection right that unlike in the case of social media companies where governments including india have tried to regulate facebook and force them to comply with with our writ so whether it's data localization i mean you may disagree with the policies or intermediary liability at least they've tried to make them and they've succeeded in many ways in making facebook comply with uh, the writ of indian indian legal framework and then at least to whatever extent indian citizens have a say in the indian legal framework because we vote the legislators in, into power right so you can say theoretically there is some voice that indian citizens have in this case however there is no protection so then so then what do you do so my solution has been that uh, and i'm still thinking about how this will actually play out is that we don't look at human rights law as a body of law we don't look at it as a top down thing that shames countries into doing things we don't look at it as a doctrinal avenue but what we look at it is a common starting point for cross cultural multilateral multinational conversations between people not between governments but between people where at the end of the day whether you are american or you are indian or you are pakistani or from the african continent you have certain inherent conceptions of dignity right like for example if you speak you want your voice to be heard if you are going into a house and don't want to be photographed you don't want to be photographed right these are all common conceptions common emotions associated with dignity but these things are also associated and they are all also codified in international human rights law as rights but the problem is that even though the african and the indian and the american 
दे ऑल हैव द सेम नोशन और इमोशन कनेक्टेड विथ दीज राइट्स दे डोंट हैव इक्वल प्रोटेक्शन एंड दे डोंट हैव इक्वल से इन शेपिंग हाउ देयर राइट्स आर एक्चुअली प्रोटेक्टेड सो द अमेरिकन बिकॉज दे हैव अ से इन वोटिंग the government in or out of power or at least complaining to the courts their privacy is more protected than the privacy of someone in another part of the world the only way that we can actually use human rights law to ensure that uh, the protections are accorded is by ensuring that people in different countries and people in different institutions talk to each other mind you we often uh, particularly in in international relations so literature we try to we do this i, I think incorrectly is that we always homogenize certain entities right so we say that facebook did x the national security agency did y and and obviously we have to do that for convenience but we have to also remember that these are not sort of the nsa is made up of people who have different identities who have different desires who have uh, their own points of view right and while they are working at the nsa or while they are working at facebook or google they may be forced to adopt the same view at the end of the day they are all different people with different aspirations and different views of the world so for and the biggest example of this is edward snowden himself right his his partner was the one who sort of convinced him that he, he was actually far more conservative before he he met his partner right so his partner actually convinced him that uh, there is something wrong with with violation of civil liberties uh, under the guise of national security so similarly if we can use human rights law as a common language that connects people across countries and across institutions to ensure that civil liberties are better protected so it it might just be a water cooler conversation between someone in the nsa who was convinced by some uh, reading of human rights law who then convinces his colleagues and his bosses to undertake uh, more privacy protection measures right? it could be something as simple as that but my basic feeling is that human rights law is only relevant if we bring human beings back into it it can't be discussions that are held in the fancy sort of united nations halls in geneva new york it can't be discussions that are only held between governments it has to be framed through human experiences and actually there it has to be conversations between human beings so instead of looking at human rights law as law we need to looking at it look at it as human rights like conversations or human rights sort of exchanges that then at the larger level can fuel some sort of change because as we've seen this complacency in shaming value does not work and if researcher researchers such as yourselves and rightly so i think believe that human rights law has no role to play in possibly the biggest human rights debate of the modern digital age then i think it is definitely time to reconceptualize what we mean by human rights and what we mean by human rights law and i think the starting point of that has to be starting from human beings and and how they perceive it doesn't mean we ignore institutions right doesn't mean that the un is absolutely useless or that you know amnesty international human rights watch are not doing great work right of course they are but i think that in some way academics and institutions alike have missed uh, or have forgotten how to uh, actually bring actors and communities and individuals outside this sort of institutional framework back into the institution so what i actually advocate for in the paper is mm-hmm. what i call an institutional approach so it's not an not an approach that's external to institutions but it's an approach that ensures that lived experiences as you mentioned so rightly are tied back to the institutional framework and not looked at as sort of external things so we need institutions but we also need conversations across institutions and countries and human rights 
whatever you call it, human rights frameworks or human rights conversations needs to be looked at as as that. It can't just be looked at as a body of law because that because the the very essence of a body of law is that it has to be enforced. If it can't be enforced, it's not law. Historically, it has not worked. If we look at it as a body of law. Exactly right. So we need to look at it as something different. I think that's where uh, surveillance is, is. I think extraterritorial surveillance is one starting point where uh, where this where this might work. The other the other way, of course, uh, back to COVID. I suppose it might work is that human rights law globally can potentially diffuse into domestic practices. Right? Maybe maybe the human rights norms can convince. Or, or if there is a universal acceptance of human rights norms across the world, it may convince actors domestically to uh, adopt more rights-respecting practices. And as we see how the world uh, responds to COVID, it's, it's possible that the approach taken by a majority of rights-respecting countries or rights-respecting institutional frameworks might actually diffuse into uh, domestic frameworks as well. But I'm not sure what you think about that. um i think it's highly unlikely at this juncture because of the obvious rise of the authoritarian styles of governance around the world but yeah sure let's let's look at look forward and hope for that because that's all we have right now um thank you so much for joining me for this conversation we have covered a good amount of surveillance and we've also done a very nice takedown of the international human rights framework and um, for uh, the purposes of listeners all the sources that you have discussed here will be up with uh, the reading material on our website and everywhere else thank you for joining us for another episode thank you arindeep for sitting down with me and talking about it um we are happy to receive any feedback on the episode you can reach us either on the cis twitter profile or on the individual accounts of me or arindeep and uh, we hope to see you next week thank you This episode was produced by the folks at the Center for Internet and Society. Intro music Fish Attack by Alpha Hydrate. Outro music Palette de Will by Wikweed. <laughs>